Everyone, we are in a series uh, called Tug of War. Uh, We started the series last week, and if you remember last week, we talked about how sometimes in life, and especially in our Christian faith, it feels like we are in this tug of war match between us and God. Like sometimes it feels like there's so much tension that we might be fighting against the one thing that we love so much. And if you remember last week, we talked about how sometimes when we're in that tug-of-war match, we automatically pull really hard, and then we feel like there is this great amount of slack on our side. Like there's this immense room that we can just run around in our life with no like pull going back to God whatsoever. We talked about last week in Romans 1 how the Roman culture was something that was a big struggle in the Christian faith. That the Roman culture, they have gone so far outside of God's view that they have created their own sense of morals. When it came to rules about sex, about job, about animals, about God, about murder, about anything, about doing evil, they have created their own set of morals. And they, we asked the question, you know, how did they get to this point, Roman, how did, Rome, how did they get to this point, going so far away from the correct way of good, which we get from God? How did it turn so quickly? How did they turn so quickly to do evil? And we learned last week, it's because it was celebrated. And we learned, one of the main things that we said was what they celebrate, and what we learned in our, our life, what we celebrate in our life is what, we'll, what we will become. So the Christians are in this really awkward place, this really awkward spot. But the Jews and non-Jews have come together to try to figure out how they're supposed to live together in this really evil and awful culture. And they try to come up with this new question of how do we live life surrounded by a culture that promotes and celebrates evil so much? How are we supposed to live in a culture, if we ask ourselves the exact same question, how are we supposed to live in a culture that does like to celebrate evil, that does like to change the morals away from what God says is good? Whether you want to believe it or not, us as Christians are slowly moving into that society where what we read in Scripture and what we celebrate in church and what we worship on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, and how we live together as a culture is not the norm of society anymore. The newest study came out about Lexington, Kentucky. I try to do this study about once a year to see. It's a vast study that we pay for that does all sorts of things. Education, living, who's living, coming into Lexington, who's coming out of Lexington, where are people coming from. But there is a small section in the, there that likes to talk about faith and likes to talk about church. And whenever we planted this church, if you guys remember, we said that the last study showed that there was about 20, I think it was 28% of people in Lexington believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only God. That doesn't mean that they go to church, but they believe in Jesus. But the new study came out, I think they do it every five years, shows that now 18% of people in Lexington believe in Jesus. 
So this means, this does not mean that they go to church. They just believe if they were to ask a question, they were to write yes or no. They would put, yes, I do believe in Jesus. So if we want things to change in our culture, we can't do it by voting anymore because 18% isn't going to win a vote. We have to do it within ourselves first. And it's weird because when we read in Romans 2, the Christians are in the exact same spot, but probably even worse than we are as Christians in Lexington today. Things are getting worse from a moral standpoint, but how do they respond is what we're going to talk about today. Paul writes about this interaction between the Christians and the Roman people, and he's responding to how they do this. So if you want to follow along today, we're going to be in Romans 2. Um, We're going to read through a big chunk of Scripture with that. You can follow along on the screen behind me. If you have that QR code um, popped up on your phone still, there is a section for the Bible app, and it will take you to the Bible app. You can also go in the Bible app to the events page and, and Elevate Christian Church. Should, if I did my job right, should be popped up at the top. So if you would follow along with me, uh, let's study together just for a, a short while. Romans 2, 1 through 6, 6 says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the exact same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the exact same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the, day God's, for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God, will you repay each person according to what they have done? See, Paul wants these Christians to understand that our human judgment, us judging other people, does absolutely nothing. It does nothing to go around with a checkbox, a list of checks and balances, asking people, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you not doing this? We aren't supposed to be the Christian hall monitors yelling at people, telling them that they're supposed to have the same moral code as us. See, Paul says here that when we do this, continue in sin, And pass the same judgment, we pass the same judgment on ourselves. See, Paul goes as far as we are storing up judgment against ourselves when we do this. The reason is because we are doing the exact opposite of what Jesus showed on this earth and what Jesus commanded us to do. Here's the main point for today. Very few people are judged into life change. But most people get loved into it. 
this is a great conversation, I believe, that we need to have with, in between us and us as a church. Because for some reason, no matter how many times we explain Jesus, our mind still wanders back to the law. And this is what Paul had to say about that as we continue. Verse 7, it says, To those who are persistent in doing good, seek glory, honor, immortality. He will be given eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human, human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. For first the Jew, then the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. What Paul is saying here. If you want to play the judgment game, you can, but here are the guidelines. You need to be persistent in doing good to see glory, honor, and immortality. If you do that and you judge, you'll be given eternal life. Glory is to be given who for whoever does good. But we need to remember... That God, but that good comes from the law. It does not come in from whatever standard that we created on our own, but it comes from God. Good comes from God. See, good equals 613 laws that God had created. God does not show favoritism, and all who sin apart from the law will perish. You are either doing everything perfectly right, or you're doing evil. There's no middle ground. Christians, and I'm talking to myself here, we have made a new covenant with Jesus over 2,000 years ago. When we are going to remember, what we need to remember is that the law is not what saves us. But grace through faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. When we go and we are to be, and we, when we go and we are going to be judged by God, He is not going to see all the laws that we broke. Thank goodness, He's not going to get a list of 613 laws and go through every single checkbox and say, "Okay, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this," and because you just didn't do one, you're going to go to hell. What He's going to do is he's going to look at us and he's going to see the sacrifice of Jesus. And if God looks upon us and sees the sacrifice of Jesus, why do we look upon society and people different than God looks upon us? Why do we look through the lens of the law every single time when somebody does wrong? See, we think we are in a tug-of-war match with society. We think we're on God's side trying to push forward 
the truth that God gives. We think we're on God's side by, by pulling and stretching and fighting with society, getting angry, pointing fingers, drawing lines on God's behalf. We think we're on God's side, and yes, Christians in the world go back and forth, tugging back and forth, very difficult for a very long side, for a very, very long time. But I have found, in what we read in Scripture, that when we are in tug-of-war with society, when we're fighting, when we're pointing our finger, when we're going back and forth, God is not on this rope at all. God has nothing to do with the tug-of-war match between the Christians and culture. See, tug-of-war was one of my favorite field games growing up. I don't know how many of you guys did uh, field games at the end of the year because you don't really learn anything the last week of school anyway. So they put you out in the field and you kind of compete against each other, compete against classes. And I looked all year to this because I loved the game of tug of war. I loved how you got as many kids on one side and you got a ton of kids on the other side. And the best part about it is the losing team always ended up getting drug about 10 yards down the field. But as you get older, you kind of realize when you start to lose and then people kind of give up. But there's always that one kid, and you all know that one kid, that holds on just a little bit too long. And he ends up getting drugged across the field down about 10 yards. It's always like the world is trying to do their best to tug on God. And we think for some reason we need to jump in the middle of it. And we need to try to pull against the world like God needs, like God really needs more people on his side. And what ends up happening is God realizes that what we're tugging against and what he's tugging against is not the same thing, and he ends up letting go. And every single time the Christian gets drug about 10 yards down the field towards the culture. Every single time when we point our fingers when we draw the line in the sand and we get drugged across the field about 10 yards towards the culture, we look absolutely silly. We look like miserable people. We look like bigots. We look like we don't actually love the culture. I mean, love the people in the culture. What Paul is trying to explain to these Christians that they don't need to go into Rome just pointing their fingers like they're God. Because any judging they do to a person is really just about them and not about God. We see this story exampled uh, in the Old Testament, actually. Before even Jesus came, we see the story about the prophet of Jonah. And everybody, if, if you have been in children's ministry before, you've probably seen or you've heard some sort of video or you've, or you've read in the scriptures or your teacher tried to tell you the story of Jonah. But sometimes we kind of miss the ending part of Jonah, which I think is what Jonah is all about. If you guys have heard about Jonah before, you've heard about probably Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the big fish. But this is a very interesting story, because Jonah was a prophet. He was a minor prophet in the Bible. And what a prophet does, his only job is to relay what God tells him to the people that God wants this message to be delivered to. That is their only job. 
They have this direct line to God. God tells them a message, and they are supposed to tell the people what's going to happen. So God saw Jonah, and he wanted to share this message to this town, this great city of Nineveh. And he wanted Jonah to go there and preach against the wickedness that they had become. They had gone away from the things that God had set in their place, and they became very, very wicked. But we learn in this story, if you remember, Jonah had no interest in going to Nineveh. So he decided to run from God. He jumps on a boat and heads in the other direction, and there ends up being this massive storm on this body of water. And everybody on the boat starts freaking out, thinking, what is going on? And Jonah kind of shares, well, the reason that this is happening is because I decided to run from God. And the people are like, why would you do that? That doesn't seem very, very smart. And it says they instantly became fearful. They did want to throw Jonah off the boat because they thought he was going to die. So they tried to paddle back to shore as quickly as possible. And they realized that that is impossible. And Jonah says, look, you just need to throw me overboard and you'll be saved. So they pick up Jonah and they throw him overboard. And this massive fish, it doesn't say whale, massive fish, which probably was a whale, comes up, God sent this massive fish and swallowed Jonah. And for three days and for three nights, he sits there in the belly of the fish. And at the end, he decides that the only way that he's going to get out of this is if he tells God he's right and that he will actually go to Nineveh and preach against the wickedness that they saw. So the fish ends up spitting him out, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches against the wickedness, and that they need to turn from their ways, and they need to worship the one true God, because if they don't, God's judgment is going to come on the city and destroy everybody. And the city ruler, the town ruler, gets up and says, we need to follow the one true God that prophet Jonah talks about. And a lot of people end the story there. But there's actually a whole other chapter to this story. And we actually kind of see the heart of what Jonah wanted. In Jonah 4, 1 through 3, it says this, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I said I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God that relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah fully admits in this moment That even though God was going to do something that was good, he wanted to show them grace. He ran away anyways because he wanted the city to be destroyed for their evil. And I need to ask this question. Probably more to myself than anybody in this room. Do we want people to receive death? Because it seems that we have more interest in pointing out people's problems 
then bringing them to the solution, which is grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Or we have no interest in sharing this gift with others. We don't want to propose or impose on other people's life, so we stay away from it all. We have no problem receiving grace for ourselves, but we have no interest in sharing it with our neighbor. So we see this in Scripture. We see the failure of the Christian followers in Rome. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to learn from Paul when he's talking about in Romans 2? Where he gets mad at the Christians saying, look, if you want to play the judgment game, then you're going to be a judge just as harshly as you are judging those people. If you're going to judge those people by the law, you're going to be judged by the law and not by grace. This is something that has been taught to us from a very small, small age. Many of us, many people would say this is the golden rule. That we're supposed to treat others the way we want to be treated. It seems so simple, but in a moment of decisions, we like to throw this out the window, and we like to just forget it. In scriptures, it says that we are supposed to use this in every single circumstance in life. Every single circumstance that we see in life, we're supposed to run it through the filter of how are we supposed to view others? How are we supposed to treat others? We're supposed to treat others the way that we would like to be treated. If you're going to change somebody's mind on a topic, how would you like that person to talk to you about it? If you were the person that wasn't following Christ, how would you like somebody to approach you about Christ? Something that happens very often in the church world is, pe- is ministers switching jobs or, or leaving jobs. Now, this is, uh, you know, amongst uh, all corporations and all jobs. People switch jobs all the time. We've had people, uh, even recently, move from job to job, going to um, further their career or just do something that is more suited for their personality. But in the church, it's, it's a little bit more of a difference because there's a huge relationship aspect to the minister and the people. There's a lot of trust involved. There's a lot of growing up together, and it makes a huge impact in people's lives. And the reason that people leave their jobs either is because they don't want to do the specific job that, they're, that they were hired to do, and there's no room to like move because of, because of budget or because of the size of the church, or it's because the church produces toxicity, and it's no longer healthy for that minister to stay there. Because of this, the average youth minister stays at a church 18 months. And if you were a part of a church before this one, or if you're growing up and your youth minister stayed longer than 18 months, that's fantastic. He beat the stereotype, and he did a very, very good job. But this is a reality, and a lot of my friends are still youth ministers. I had a friend uh, recently, um, about uh, two months ago, shared uh, with his congregation or his elders that he was going to leave the church and go do, be a youth minister at another church. But he, he presented with them, hey, I'll stay as long as you need to make sure that the transition happens because he really does love the people of the church. And they said, okay, if you can stay for a month, that would be great. That would help us out. And two Sundays ago, he learned that one of his friends was going to take his position at this church. And he asked the question to a bunch of us. 
would it be wise of me to share with my friend the experience that I had at this church, which wasn't very good? And to my surprise, a lot of the people that were in this chat, in this group Facebook page, said, no, you should not share with this person what he is getting into. And I, I chimed in real quickly and I said, yes, you need to share absolutely everything with this person. Because we're talking about eternity here. We aren't talking about somebody who's just cutting grass. We're talking about the eternity of, of a person. Moving people closer to Jesus. This is the most important thing in our life. Yes, you need to share every aspect of this. If you can make sure that youth minister is successful, please share something. In the same way, if someone has something that could change your life forever and bring you peace, wouldn't you want to know about it? And, had a, and, and you could hear about a first-hand experience on how that changed their life forever. I know that I would. So how we view every situation is so important. Because how you go into the world makes a huge difference. Because we need to react to the culture in love. We need to react to the people in the culture with love. Here was the main point for today. Very few people get judged into life change. But most people get loved into it. We interact with culture every day. We do it online. We do it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, if you're on that. We interact, interact with people on the streets, at restaurants, our coworkers, our neighbors. It is impossible to stay in your little Christian bubble that you find here at church every day of every waking moment. And if you did that, you're very, very talented at that. But if you get online, like we all do, and you get into a hot debate, whether it's about abortion, about President Biden, President Trump, gun laws, inflation, war, it doesn't matter if you have an idea that is opposing to the person that you're talking to and you cannot reply in love, then what you said means nothing. When interacting with somebody outside of the faith, our goal should not be to be right. If your goal is to be right at any cost, then you lost, because now you have somebody they will never listen to you again. We should be going into culture, not with a pointed finger, saying that you're evil, but with an open hand, willing to guide and wait for every opportunity to share life change, to show true love in every moment. We do this because we deeply need to care. We need to deeply care about our neighbors. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Luke 10, 25 through 37 says this. This is a parable from Jesus. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must you do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, or with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked and robbed. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the the same road, and he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the same side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged the wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The experts in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, the context behind the scripture that makes it even more interesting is that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And I'm not talking about like they had like conflict and they like didn't really talk to each other. I mean, they hated each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they created a man-made law that if you were in the presence of another Samaritan, you would become unclean, the same as if you sinned. That is how much they hated each other. But Jesus shares this example. Even in your hate... Who is your neighbor? Will you be there in the times of need? See, sometimes we pull back and forth on this rope as we've talked about. We pull back and forth on this rope with culture. And we are pulling and we're pulling and we're drawing lines and we're pointing fingers. And we're getting mad online. We're going on rants. Put in whatever you want in that fill in the blank. But sometimes in culture, actually most time, when we are dealing with people in culture, sometimes we just need to let go of the rope. Sometimes we need to stop drawing a line in the sand and just let go. Because just like the main point says, people will not get judged into eternity, but most people will be loved into it. 